If you want to look at the next sheet, one that I left on your tables, this third, that would be the third one, the positions. This is still part of the introduction. I gave you an introduction to the introduction. We stressed the importance. Yep. We talked about the intent, or if you want another word, purpose. I use intent just to kind of alliterate there. And then we looked at interpretation. And you might even say that this is part of interpretation because this is how various other schools of thought interpret the book of Revelation, the different other positions. And as you might notice on the outline sheet, there are different positions with respect to the millennial kingdom or the millennium. Secondly, there are different positions with respect to the period called tribulation, the period uh, tribulation period. And then there's some hermeneutical principles as well. So lots of different viewpoints, lots of positions that you need to take into account. And just, just up front, I'll stress the only position that requires that you take a grammatical, historical, contextual approach is the approach that we'll take. Every one of these other approaches departs from a literal approach or grammatical, historical, contextual. Every single one of them has to depart to maintain that position. So really in eschatology, there are really only two positions, you might say. There's only a position that takes a consistent literal approach, a consistent grammatical, historical approach. The alternative is a variety of approaches that depart from a literal approach. So that distinguishes our approach from all other approaches. And our approach is only, is the only one that takes a consistent grammatical, historical, or literal approach. Make sense? So let's first of all look at the different millennial positions. And on that, we have three major ones, unless you want to refer to the one that sometimes people jokingly refer to as pan-millennialism. Have you ever heard of pan-millennialism? No? They're just say everything will pan out. <laughs> so I'm not too concerned about it. <laughs> yeah, people use it jokingly. Trick yeah, trick question, exactly. You gotta be aware of my questions. <laughs> right, Sheila? Okay. First of all, post millennialism. That's your first one on your sheet there. In general, obviously, as the word means, post means after, and millennium referring to that millennial period. Well, the idea is that Christ returns after the millennium. Christ return after. The millennium. So we'll put the arrow at the end there. End of all things, Christ's return. A good description of it is by Gentry, and he says that this position expects the proclaiming of the Spirit-blessed gospel of Jesus Christ to win the vast majority of human beings to salvation. This is the most optimistic approach. The idea of postmillennialism, as he says there, the gospel will win 
the world. In, in other words, as we preach the gospel and it goes to all the nations, people will be converted and there'll be a transformation of the culture. So the gospel wins the majority of human beings to salvation in the present age, in the church age. Increasing, he goes on, increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of people and nations and of nations. How are we doing? Not so good. <laughs> Not so good. Huh? Like that kind of has to ignore human nature or sin nature. Believe that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, because we're not doing so well, particularly after World War II, this viewpoint almost died out. But I present it because there's a resurgence of this viewpoint today in some circles. I'll get to that in a moment. Let me finish the quote of Gentry. After an extensive, and by the way, I don't think Gentry is necessarily post-millennial. I think he's amillennial, but he's describing it, and he describes it real well. Uh, in our generation. Last sentence here, after an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and in great glory, ending history with the general resurrection and the great judgment of all mankind. That's a good description. That's an accurate description of post-millennialism. So the Lord comes back, pats the church on its back, did a good job, so now he comes back, and now we can go into eternity. After a final so, depressing, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, depressing in that sense. So, post millennialism, the church dominates through the gospel, and they use uh, Romans one sixteen. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, or he's actually very confident in the gospel because it is what power. the power of God under salvation, and it is supernatural power, but. It does not necessarily bring about the goals that the post-millennialist expects. So, there will be, as a result of the gospel, worldwide peace and righteousness. Worldwide peace and righteousness. Lasts for a thousand years. So, I'm not sure if it's begun yet. (laughs) I think during the great missionary endeavors, people thought, you know, we're doing so well now. Maybe this is the beginning of that time frame. But World War One and World War Two kind of brought a screeching halt to that thinking. Fourthly, Christ is not present except in the hearts of his saints, his believers, not visibly. So they take the second coming passages literally. They have to spiritualize the kingdom passages. Christ comes after the millennium. So in essence, on our little timeline here, The church age grows and grows and grows until the world is transformed and they would put the the millennial kingdom as part part of the church age. It's very much possible. Christ comes after the millennium. Okay? So it would include the millennium as part of the church age. Questions? Well, just it kind of seems like the the, the old West American mentality, pick yourself out of your bootstraps. We do it. Yes. We get the glory, you know. Because, I mean, there's really no... All God did was give us the gospel and say, yes. now you go and do the rest of it. Right. Yeah, I think it's well-meaning, yeah. but unbiblical. Just wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think you probably hit at the heart of why it fails is because of the depravity of... Yeah. Exactly. 
So then, after the church age, after this thousand years, Christ returns. And then, as Gentry says in that quote, then you have the general resurrection and you have a judgment, the final judgment. And he would put the great white throne, or they would put the great white throne judgment there. The way they support it, uh, they use the covenants and they add some. And by the way, this is in some reform circles in the past, historically. So they would include a creation covenant, which I'm not sure is clearly spelled out. It's by more by implication, but I'm not sure the implications are solid. They also use an Edenic covenant. They use the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I believe the Abrahamic covenant will, in fact, be fulfilled in history and has been fulfilled partially, but not completely, and I think it will be fulfilled during the Millennial Kingdom, so they stress that aspect. They also stress the New Covenant. Secondly, they use scriptures like Psalm 2 that speaks of God ruling, God's dominion, but they transfer up to the church, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Also, Matthew 13, a new form of the kingdom. They would stress those as that's the present kingdom. Matthew 13, those are the parables of the kingdom. We'll talk about that. Or John 12, 31 through 32. And they use, obviously, the Great Commission and that the church will, in fact, fulfill the Great Commission. And they use that in conjunction with uh, a passage that Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse. But I think that passage pertains to the tribulation period, where the coming will not come until all of the nations hear the gospel. The power of the gospel, I mentioned Romans 1, 16. Those are the passages they would stress and emphasize to support it. A little bit of the history of this viewpoint. The origin goes primarily to the 17th century, Daniel Whitby. He was a Unitarian. He saw the Jewish emphasis of eschatology, so a Jewish orientation. So since the 1700s, uh, then, during the missionary period, it grew. And then liberals latched onto it. So in some of the older liberal commentaries, some of them are post-millennial. And eventually, in liberal circles, it became more evolutionary. In other words, the church evolving and the world evolving. Evolution is a optimistic view as well that doesn't take into account as a uh, depravity and is also a false view, but it wasn't based on the Bible. And then, as I mentioned, after World War One and World War Two, it was essentially abandoned because people said, we're not doing that well. Reality always kind of trumps man's dreams. But we need to be aware of it. There's a resurgence today. There's a resurgence today. And specifically in the reform camp? There's two, there's two camps. One of them is in the reform camp. Camp, a lot of reformed theologians are reverting to postmillennialism. It's called dominion theology. So if you see dominion theology, it's, it's a postmillennial approach. It's also called reconstructionist, the reconstructionist movement. This is in reform circles. Another huge and probably even greater segment of Christianity or Christendom, however you want to classify it, is the charismatic movement. There's a charismatic dominion theology, charismatic element. 
Pat Robertson, one of the motivations for him running for president. The idea is believers need to get involved in the politics, need to get involved in the economy, need to get involved in every area, seek positions of power, and then from your position of power, you can exert that. Uh, Now, it's well-meaning for the gospel, but also to influence the culture such that we move from paganism to more of a Christian worldview. And as we do that, and as evangelism takes its effect, then we can impact the whole world. And that's the thinking today in a lot of the Dominion theology uh, preachers. You see a lot of that happening in Brazil. You see that? Dominion theology? Mm -hmm. They're trying to take over the uh, power positions and what, with that mindset. Yeah. Now, the motivation, I don't have a problem with motivation, but it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, not going to end up the way that, that, is true. that we think it might. Well, I was going to say, if, if it's not of God, it's of Satan. It's human good is evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the simple. Yeah. That's the simple answer I would. Yeah, that might be a little drastic because I think well-meaning people are holding this and people that I think they're mistaken, but yeah. It's kind yeah. of sad because a lot of the, uh, the stuff that happens is, you know, like, it looks kind of like backfires on them. Yeah. And it's... It's unfortunate. <laughs> right. It is unfortunate. So just be aware that in some circles it still pops up. Some of the proponents, these are even more recent writers, Bettner, John Murray, O.T. Allis, R.J. Rush Dooney. These are people more current. Some of the older ones, Charles Hodge, who's a sound theologian. Now this is in that early period. A.H. Strong, he's a good Baptist, right? A.H. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, who's an excellent theologian. A lot of these older ones were post-millennialists. So, and I would highly recommend Charles Hodge, A.H. Strong, B.B. Warfield. I have several of his books. They're excellent. They're conservative. They're exegetical oftentimes. They're they're very good. But (laughs) avoid them when he comes... When you come to eschatology. Another great theologian, W.G. Teeth Shedd. I've got his theology, three-volume theology. T. Brightman, not so well-known. So that's post-millennialism. The other viewpoint is amillennialism. Yeah. Can, uh, can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say somebody, on one hand, an excellent theologian, their eschatology is understood? Well, for example, B.B. Warfield... We depend on him on the doctrine of inerrancy. He has some of the best writings on the doctrine of inerrancy, uh, bibliology. He's good on soteriology. A lot of these are real good on soteriology. They're good on theology proper. In fact, all of those theologians, we depend on them for theology proper. So a lot of those areas, they're pretty solid because they are grammatical, historical, contextual. And then when it comes to eschatology, they depart from it. They have to, to hold to things like hold. I think that helps. Well, I wouldn't question their attitude even, I, or their godliness. No, that's it's what just, I mean. I, that helps with somebody like me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Because uh, there are certain things down bookstairs. There are certain books down there I have trouble with, so I have to yeah. be careful with my attitude. Yeah, yeah, and by putting them up there, I don't want to, I hope I give you enough to not diminish them as overall theologians and exegetes and and books. I own some of those books. 
I own a book by Bettner and some of the others. And they're extremely useful. I use them. They're good. I wouldn't use their eschatology. That's the only point. You don't want to get sideswiped by that. Yeah, not everybody can have their theology perfect like us. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mark. Well, I was going to say, in the, in, the, in the history of doctrine throughout the ages, from the resurrection all the way up till now, there are various theologians and various uh, apologetics and all those people in, in the different systems of theology, Martiology, Christology, right. Soteriology, uh, Bibliology, each one of those, some people are strong in and some people are weak in. Yeah. Or actually, the right way to say it is some people are right in. And some people, and, and they're wrong exactly. in many other areas. Yeah, exactly. It just depends on the period that they studied and who they were at the times and all those different things. Right. That they can be good in one area and, and it's not abnormal. The, and it does. You might say are the great ones. They're going to be weak in some area. So in that area, yeah. you just be aware. And it doesn't, doesn't diminish their spirituality, their sincerity, their godliness. Like we said, not everybody can be like us. It's unfortunate, <laughs> but reality, right? So let's look at amillennialism. Amillennialism in its essence is we are in the kingdom now. And when we say amillennial, it's almost like you could say unmillennial, if you will. In Greek, when you prefix a word with an alpha, it negates it. Theos, if you add an alpha to theos, it's atheos, which is what? Atheist. All right? So it's kind of like the opposite, if you will. So amillennialism doesn't say there's not a millennium. It just says there's not a literal earthly, or I shouldn't even say earthly, not a literal visible kingdom. It's an earthly kingdom. Mm -hmm. There is one, but it's different from the one that we look at. So no future millennium. No future millennium. Secondly, heaven rules now. Rules over the church. That kind of rules out Israel. Yep. Yeah, it tends toward, it doesn't necessarily always include anti-Semitism, but it opens the door to anti-Semitism. Kind of like the replacement theology. Replacement theology. Yes, yes, exactly. Satan now bound, so it has to take Revelation 20, the first three verses, in a non-literal way. He's got a long chain, is what they'd say. So when did his kingdom end? When Christ returns. Well, I thought you said he's now bound. No, he's, yeah, he, from their perspective, he is bound with a long chain. In other words, he still has a lot of activity. He's got room to wiggle there. Yeah, he's got wiggle room. So he was bound when Christ rose from the dead? Or how do they? I don't know if they. they I don't know if they tie it in, but okay. he. Okay. Yeah, it's non-literal, so yeah, you can, you can put that anywhere. Stretch that however you want to. Yeah, that's kind of what my question. Yeah. When do they consider him to? I guess you, if you wanted to pinpoint, maybe the resurrection, as Eric is pointing out. But you could even take that all the way back to when he was thrown out of uh, out of heaven. So yeah. Well, that Revelation is. passage may be looking ahead. Yeah. 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 Well, in, in Matthew, you know, I, Jesus, it was clear that Satan's in charge of the It's earth. his now, yeah, yeah. Yes, he's the God of this world. And you see that little phrase, you know, 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Ephesians, God of this world. Yeah, he's, yeah, this has a lot of problems, but that's one of their, it's one of their, one of their positions. 
Christ is present in hearts. In other words, he's ruling in hearts. Now, there's two forms. There's more an earthly form. In other words, the kingdom is now. The kingdom equals the church. And there's also a form that kingdom is or Christ is ruling from the right hand of the Father. Christ comes at the end of the age, the end of the church age, and that's all there is that's left. The two forms here, there's a historic Augustinian form, kingdom between the first and second comings, and the kingdom is on earth. That's what I was just referring to. One, one seems to do with time, and the other seems to do with place, so I, I understand the comparison there. The first no, 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 those are the same. Those are the historic Augustinian. Here's the, here's the modified Augustinian. This is the second one, the modified one. Yeah. Satan partially bound. Kingdom is in heaven. There's the distinction. Kingdom on earth equals the church. The kingdom in heaven also equals the church, but it's more spiritual. Two forms. Modified Augustinian, historic Augustinian. Got it? On our little timeline here, church in essence equals the kingdom, whether it's in heaven or whether it's on earth. And it does lead to replacement theology, or logically it would follow. And logically it tends toward, you wouldn't classify it strictly speaking, but it tends towards anti-Semitism. And historically this is where anti-Semitism did in fact rise up. Remember Luther, Luther was amillennial, and he, in later years, became anti-Semitic. And then we have the return after this church age, at the end of the age. So it's not that it says there's no millennial kingdom, there's just no future kingdom. The kingdom is now. It's so, kind of interesting, you know, when you think about the Catholics then, that they became anti-Semitic, and now they're, they're not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know about in Brazil. Well, it's one, it's one of the reasons why amillennialism isn't, strictly speaking, anti-Semitic. It just opens a door for it. Yeah. yeah so, and by the way, amillennialism is the most popular viewpoint today. By far. By far. So you know? in the present understanding or with toward... I, toward the latter, the modified? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Roman Catholicism, most of Reformed theology... And most of the other denominations as well. The viewpoint that we take is by far the minority. By far the minority view. And just like post-millennialists, after the church age, then you have a final resurrection and a final judgment. And we're going to see, if you look at the passages carefully, we're going to see several resurrections and we're going to see different judgments as well. We're going to divide those up. It's a lot easier... Ours is real complicated. That's why we need a whole course. So yeah. they um, mm-hmm. They have to. And all the kingdom passages, yes. They have to spiritualize them. To answer your question, Catholicism is so different. It's so syncretized. When they say, it's, it's just, I don't know. The best way I can put it, and hopefully I'm not being too mean, but it's so messed up. You know, it's such a mix-up everything, so... Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just sad. You now, did you grow up in Brazil? Yes. Or? Yeah. Still, like, there was a huge movement, you know, like, with the um, uh, the charismatic movement, even mm-hmm. within the uh, Catholic Church, and the uh, the way that they're trying to do that is to kind of, quote-unquote, 
um, rescue people that have been accepting Christ because it has been growing so much. But then again, you know, the same thing with politics and people right. that are like Christians, they want to take over the government. And all all that you're saying, I'm just sitting over here being like, yep, yeah, Rosa, 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 you know what I mean? So. Yeah. So you've got Portuguese. Yes, yeah, so I speak Portuguese and Spanish. And Spanish. Yeah. But my yeah. native language is Portuguese. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, you don't have a detectable accent. Well, I learned English here and I came to the yeah. US when I was 15. So I learned, you know, like. Okay, the support Ephesians 2 6. Philippians 3.20, we're, we're citizens of heaven, so there's a heavenly kingdom, they'll stress that aspect, spiritual, not physical, material, visible, passages referring to the last days, like Hebrews 1.2, and if you read Hebrews 1.2, it speaks basically of the church beginning in apostolic times, so it includes the church age as the last days. And there's other passages as well, 9.26, Hebrews 9.26. So because we are in the last days, we are in the kingdom. That's the argument. Acts 2, 16 and 17, that's Peter's speech. Day of Pentecost, they'll use 16 and 17 there. They will claim that they're using the hermeneutics of the New Testament, and specifically Jesus, particularly that little passage where he refers to the kingdom, how does he state it? It's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. They'll use that passage and they'll say Jesus is interpreting for us and they stretch the interpretation of the apostles as well. Do you think uh, that uh, progressive dispensationalists use that passage too then? No. No, I don't think they've gone that far. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they've done gone that far. They're heading in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Recent proponents, and by the way, almost, you might almost pick up any book on prophecy, and in general it will be amillennial. So you have to really search and make sure you know what you're looking for to find premillennial. So EJ, and by the way, these are excellent expositors again. You could use them for the exposition of Ephesians or, you know, other books. E.J. Young, William Hendrickson, and I don't question their spirituality or their sincerity. Abraham Kuyper, Leon Morris, older ones, Burkhoff, Reformed theologian, Lenski as well, Reformed theologian. H.B. Sweet's got a commentary in the book of Revelation. His commentary is all millennial. Martin Luther would have been all millennial. And to the credit of the reformers, I think they had their hands full with dealing with all of the other issues they need to battle with the Roman Catholic Church, particularly soteriology. I think they just didn't have time to deal with eschatology. And I mentioned that Calvin, did I mention Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. (laughs) And I don't think it was because he didn't believe in it or I think he just didn't have time. I think he ran out of time. He died, he died relatively young. I can't think of the, the other a person's name. The German expositors, Kyle and... Galich? Yeah, aren't they all now? I think so. I'd have to check that. Yeah. Yeah. I would. If you were to ask me to guess, I would say yes. Okay, pre-millennialism, and with the pre, we mean that Christ comes before the millennium. This is the only approach 
that attempts to be grammatical, historical, contextual, and consistent in that interpretation. Christ returned before the millennium. And I'm going to go over this quickly because we'll spend the rest of the course from this perspective. It's the minority view by far, by far minority. And this is the essence of it. Christ comes before the millennium. Before. And only he can establish the kingdom. Any attempt by man is futile. Amillennialism, postmillennialism is futile. So he establishes the kingdom. Pardon me? As a Jew. As a Jew. And it's a Jewish kingdom, yes. The kingdom is literal and earthly. It's not so in post or amillennialism. It's not literal. And it's kind of a mixture of whether it's earthly or not, but it's either invisible or it's spiritual in some way. Fourthly, it's distinct from a present form of the kingdom. Now, amillennialism uses the Matthew 13 parables of the kingdom as describing amillennialism. But I see those as separate and distinct and different. Christ always rules. God always rules. He's ruling now. But he's not ruling in the millennial kingdom. Mark. Present form means present history? Church age. Okay. Distinct from church age form of a kingdom. There is a form of the kingdom. I think the parables of the kingdom that Jesus uses in Matthew 13 describe that. We'll talk about that. The Jews expect fulfillment of all of the promises. And we would hold that God will, in fact, fulfill everything that he has promised in the way that he has promised it, in a literal way. And that's what Jews expect. All of the other views diminish the Jews and even see the Jews as no longer valid or no longer in view. They would see, in many circles, replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel. They would apply all of the passages and the covenants that pertain to Israel to the church. So that's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. Two forms. There's the historic premillennial form, and it would include non-dispensationalists. It would include a variety of theologies, a variety of theologies, some reformed even. And then there's what we would describe as the dispensational form that makes distinctions primarily between Israel and the church. Two different programs of God. They're separate, distinct, and we'll look at them individually. Uh, We would be considered the latter. We would be considered dispensational. And that distinguishes us from not only the other form, but all other approaches as well. So that's premillennialism. Their dispensational would see a kingdom that is earthly, and there's also heavenly states. Now, there's two realms. There's a spiritual realm, a heavenly realm, and there's an earthly realm. We would distinguish between the two. We would make distinctions. We wouldn't mix them. The other views mix earth and heavenly states. This is the key. We maintain a literal and a consistent grammatical historical approach, grammatical historical contextual approach. And as I've already stressed, if you do that as a starting point, which you should, if you do that as a starting point, you'll end up premillennial. There's, I mean, you won't, there's no other way. 
you'll end up that way. So we don't impose this. What we do is we try to be consistent in our hermeneutic, and what falls out is a premillennial approach. It just is the product of a consistent hermeneutic, and it's the only approach. Secondly, we have a position concerning fulfilled prophecy. We see a lot of prophecy already fulfilled, but we see a future aspect of a lot of prophetic passages where amillennialism sees a lot of those passages are already fulfilled. So we have a difference in terms of fulfilled prophecy. Another support is the early church, even though amillennialists will claim that the early church did not hold to premillennialism, there are examples. It's not always clear, but some of the church fathers were premillennial. So the early church held to it, and I believe the disciples obviously did, or the apostles, the writers of the New Testament. This is the Old Testament expectation, and we'll look at a lot of passages that if you take them literally, they've never been fulfilled, so we still expect them future. Chronology of major passages, I'll try to show that. We'll look at major passages. And a literal approach to Revelation 19 through 20. And there's lots of details to this that we'll look at. There's a church age. There are phases in the second coming where believers are resurrected. We describe that as the rapture. There's a period of time, tribulation, very specific, seven years. Not seven years and two days, seven years. And then we see the second phase where Christ returns visibly, physically, dramatically, gloriously. And we have distinction between that and that first phase. And when he comes, he will establish a millennial kingdom in all of its literalness. And we'll talk about that literalness in that period of time. There's death, for example, in the millennial kingdom. People have babies in the millennial kingdom. People harvest crops in the millennial kingdom. There'll be animals. You'll be able to take your pet. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to get one from the tribulation. <laughs> but uh, there'll be some uh, interesting things there that we'll look at when we get to that point. Then there is another resurrection, and there's also a final judgment. There's other judgments that occur. Even that tribulation period is a period of judgment. We distinguish it. Some of the proponents, some dispensationalists, a lot of books by John Walfred, G.L. Archer, Gleason Archer, J.D. Pentecost, and Walfred and Pentecost have just recently died. They're... Walford was president of Dallas Seminary, Pentecost, professor there until close to his death. Feinberg, professor at uh, Talbot, I believe. A.J. McLean, these are dispensational proponents, premillennialism. Some of the older ones, the historic G.E. Ladd, F.F. Bruce, Lightfoot, R.H. Charles. So some of your older books be from a variety, like like Bruce is not necessarily dispensational. When, when you say that apostles, you might, we wouldn't have said that. The reason I said that is because if we take them literally and interpret them, it kind of falls out pre-millennial. Even though they thought it was coming upon them at that time. Mm-hmm. Like yes. We get the imminent idea, the imminent return of the Lord. And you're going to go back over that 
two arms. Okay. It wasn't clear. Um, when where my notes say historic includes non-dispensationalist on the church. Some some of those that take a premillennial view are not as literal as dispensation. They're, uh-huh. Sometimes they depart. So a mix of yeah, they would, uh, uh, they like would, the bold They'd be more flexible in your interpretation. And what about the um, state mixing? You said the oh, dispensational that, mix first being the least. Yeah, makes a distinction. Uh, when we get to the kingdom, for example, we'll talk about the church age believers in the kingdom. They will be more spiritual, more heavenly, really, because we'll be in resurrected bodies, and we'll distinguish them between those that are on earth in mortal bodies. There'll be a distinction there, and there'll be some other aspects of the kingdom that we'll distinguish. And the historical. They tend to mix those. They tend to mix them up and not make the sharp distinctions of the dispensation. They also tend to be older, and a lot more work has been done primarily by uh, dispensationalists. So there's more detail. We completed looking at differences in terms of how eschatology is related to the millennial kingdom. There are several positions. Also, relating to the second coming and the tribulation period, tribulation positions. Now, these are within the premillennial view. So all of these are premillennial in terms of the millennium, but different in terms of the tribulation. And in this case, when we're talking about the second coming, we're primarily talking about that first phase, or the rapture. When does the rapture take place? Is that first phase of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning? Is it in the middle? Is it throughout? Is it at the end? Is it spiritual? You know, all these different views. So that's what we're going to do now. There is a post-tribulational view. And when we say post-tribulation, obviously post is after, so... This first phase is after and almost simultaneous with the second phase. So you have a rapture and then almost within a matter of seconds or they don't specify a time, but almost immediately then you have a return. So rapture and return, essentially the same time frame after this period of time, it's called tribulation. And there are two variations of it. It would it would uh, say that this entire church age is the tribulation period. And after the church age, then Christ returns for his own and then immediately sets foot on earth. So there's that variation. There's also a future great tribulation that takes the passages more literally. A future, literal, awful period of time a specific period of time in the future. But the church goes through that period of time and is not raptured until after that period of time, that seven-year period. Two variations. Both find support from the vocabulary of the second coming. And by vocabulary, what I mean, they don't make a distinction. We will make fine distinctions in the coming we will, use, we will, like I mentioned, we will see some usages of parousia relating to that first phase, and then we'll see other aspects of the parousia that refer to the 
visible second actual coming. They will kind of fuzzy up the vocabulary, and when it says parousia, they would put it all together in terms of the end of the tribulation. Second, and there are, uh, we would uh, agree, there are many, many passages that promise that we will have tribulation. And the word, thlipsis, Greek word, is used in a general sense that uh, we as believers during the church age should expect tribulation. Jesus was very clear. If they rejected him, he said, you can be assured they will reject you, my followers. And he described in quite detail that believers and the disciples in particular they were speaking with would experience tribulation or suffering. Now, different words are used, but the word tribulation is one of them. And you look at the early church, you look at the book of Acts, the disciples suffered. They were thrown in prisons. And all of the disciples, or all of the apostles, were martyred except John. But John went through persecution as well. He went through tribulation. So they make a big deal about all these passages that promise believers tribulation. Thirdly, they see the church on earth, so they speak of tribulation during church age and referring to the church on earth, and they would put the church on earth during that seven-year period of time. And one of the things that they would point to in the book of Revelation, it speaks of saints during the tribulation, saints that are alive on earth during the tribulation. They would say, look, there's saints there. But we would make a distinction. Yes, saints, but these are different from those during the church age. I think the church age, church age has a beginning. Can you pinpoint a beginning? The church age? Day of Pentecost, exactly. I think that's what you were going to say, or you said kind of halfway. It has a beginning, I think the day of Pentecost, and I believe it has an end. And what is the end date? Or not date. You don't have a date. You don't want to set a date. The end time, you might say. Yeah, I think the rapture ends the church age. So everything that is de- related to the tribulation period is after church age. It is not part of the church age. So those saints that are described in the book of Revelation, and I think some of them would also be described in the Old Testament, those are different saints from church age saints. They're believers in Jesus Christ, but they are not part of the ecclesia that is specific in terms of church age. Fulfillment of Daniel 9, they use Daniel 9, 24-27. They interpret it slightly differently than we would. They would see believers in there. In fact, that's one of the passages. Your people, when it refers to Daniel's people, they would equate them with believers. And they're believers, but they're not church age believers. They stress passages that promise supernatural protection. Otherwise, you have a real hard time getting through the tribulation period. But unfortunately, you have a problem with these promises because there are a lot of believers, a lot of those saints during that period of time that are martyred. In fact, most of them are probably martyred. What happened to the protection? Well, I don't think it has to do with the church at all. And those promises of protection, obviously, 
that pertain to the church age do not have application during that period of time. So some of the things that you have to deny, you have to deny a, a distinction between the church and Israel. And this viewpoint generally does that. Secondly, you have to deny the doctrine of eminence because if it's at the end of the tribulation, there are lots of signs that have to take place before. And the doctrine of eminence is that nothing needs to take place ahead of time. The Lord could have come in the first century in that first phase. He could have come at any time during church history. He could come at any time today. There is no event that is specified that needs to precede that first phase. But the signing of the covenant, what the Antichrist does in the middle, all of that is predicted. All of that has to take place before the end of the tribulation. Plus all of those judgments that take place that are described. So there's lots of events that have to take place before the actual second coming. So it destroys the doctrine of eminence. It also denies a rapture, second advent distinction. It almost lumps them together. They try to make a distinction, but it really doesn't work out very well. Fourthly, it denies the very purpose of the tribulation. And when we look at the tribulation, we'll see that there are two major purposes. There are several purposes, but two major ones that stand out in terms of the purpose of the tribulation. One of them relates to judgment. It's a period of judgment where God is effecting judgment upon the earth. A second, and probably the primary reason, is it's for Israel. It's to bring Israel into a realization that nothing is going to solve their problem. In fact, they will be extinct unless they trust in Messiah. So it's going to bring Israel to faith. purpose of the tribulation is to save the nation of Israel. I think that's the primary purpose. We'll look at that in more detail. So it denies both those purposes. The tribulation is not, does not have a purpose for the church. It has a purpose for the world, the unbelieving world, primarily. And it has a purpose for Israel, who will become the believing world during that time, or at least part of it. So it denies the purpose of the tribulation. It also denies a future future fulfillment of Daniel 9, 24-27, even though it uses that passage as support. A literal seven-year period of time. And finally, it is adamant against dispensationalism in lots of circles. It denies dispensationalism. Some of the proponents of this viewpoint, most amillennialists in general are post-millennial. Although this is primarily within premillennial circles. And certainly post-millennialists would fall into that camp as well. Catholics, Protestants tend to be post-millennial. A lot of Protestants tend to be post-millennial if they take a position at all. A lot of them do not. Individuals, G.E. Ladd, Gundry, these are commentators primarily. Theologians, A. Reese, D.J. Moo. So they do make a difference between the rapture and the second advent. It almost happens. Collapses together, yeah. 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 They're, they're pretty weak in making the distinction as well. Mid-tribulation. If you want to chart it, here's a timeline. And on the timeline, we are today, and we see a future period of tribulation. Now, this is probably, this is probably 
most popular. That's the mid-trip. Because it kind of straddles the fence. It sees the church going through part of the tribulation, but being rescued as well. Whereas the post-tribulation, there's no rescue. And it would put a rapture in the middle of the tribulation. And we're going to see that the Bible makes a very, very definite distinction between a first part and a second part. It divides it exactly into three and a half years of seven years. And Daniel does that. And everything else follows from Daniel. So they would see the church going through the first half, first three and a half years of tribulation, and they would use the same argument that the post-tribulationist uses. We'll see that in a moment in terms of the church going through suffering. But then they are raptured before the, the more horrendous part of the tribulation. And then we return with the Lord, much like what we would say in the premillennial view. So we have a rapture in the middle, and then we have a return at the end. Support, promise of tribulation, same one, same uh, argument. And I said there's lots of passages that promise tribulation, but not the tribulation. Different, we make a distinction. They make a big point out of the three and a half years, the duration. They hold to a seven year generally, but they make a big point on the two parts, the three and a half. The book of Revelation does, in fact, make a distinction. Daniel refers to a time, singular, times, in Hebrew, duo, which is two. That's, if you add the two up, that's three, and a half a time, so three and a half. That's the book of Daniel. The book of Revelation also uses that phraseology, but the book of Revelation also specifies 1,206 days and 42 months, exactly. And in that, that's three and a half years. So it makes does make a sharp distinction, and they use that as distinguishing. The reason it does this is to distinguish between when the church is during on earth during tribulation and when it's not. And Revelation 11, they would use the two witnesses that, in fact, and chapter 11 seems to specify that in the middle, we do have a rapture, if you will, or a resurrection of two witnesses. And they use that as typological. In other words, this typifies the church. So already they're starting to be literal. starting <laughs> to wander off the reservation. So Revelation 11 is a big point of argument there. They also make a big point of the last trumpet. And the argument is, well, how can you have trumpet judgments after the rapture? Because, what is it? First Corinthians refers at the last trumpet. Well, again, that can be sorted out. So the mere fact that there are trumpet judgments during that seven-year period of time argues against the last trumpet being at the beginning. It has to be sometime during, and the best place from their viewpoint is in the middle. They distinguish between the nature of the judgments in the book of Revelation, nature of Revelation judgments, and the distinction they make, they would say that the first half of that seven years, that first three and a half years, the wrath is the wrath of man, the wrath of men. In other words, Christians are going to suffer at the hands of fellow human beings, fellow humans, during that period of time. They would see the 
judgments after the rapture as the wrath of God, where God is pouring these out. But I don't think it fits all of the passages. I think all of it is the wrath of God it, from start to finish. And God uses a variety of means. He can use the actions of men, but he uses supernatural uh, physical actions as well, cataclysms, if you will. So I think it's a false distinction that they make there to try to make the point. So it's all wrath of God in different forms. Some of it is as a result of consequences of men's actions and things that men do. Some of it is a result of direct disturbing of the natural realm, such as you have earthquakes and darkening of the sky and intensity of heat and that sort of thing. Stars falling out of the sky. So, uh, so the, or the, the pre-wrath view is... That's a different one. Is I'm that gonna because get they can't tie it to the middle? Yeah, I'm going to get to another one. Okay. Yeah. Right. And they make the same distinction. A big, uh, even a bigger point than the mid-tribs. Okay. Yep. Opponents of this view, Norman Harrison, Oliver Buswell, and again, these are good commentators. Gleason Archer, Harold Akenga, they're probably the main ones. There's others, obviously. These are more current. Here's your pre-wrath. Now, this is very recent. It's been around, what, 15 years, 10 years, or 20 years, somewhere in there? Very recent. They see some of the problems that the mid-trib view has in terms of tying it to the middle. So the pre-wrath, and this is it's, it's a very complicated view. I've tried to break it down into simple parts here, but this is the essence of it here. They, what's the guy's name? Rosenthal? Is that the one that kind of wrote a book? Pre-wrath something? Yeah. I've got it in my notes somewhere. That's what you've got here. Rosenthal pre-wrath. Yeah. Pre-Wrath Rapture, is that how he titles it? He's the one that has the main support for it. And in his book, he sees the first four sealed judgments before the middle. That purple line is the middle of the tribulation. And then he sees the wrath of man. Uh, Seal six or five and six is the tribulation of wrath of man. And he makes that sharp distinction. And then once the wrath of man is done, where men persecute the church, essentially, then that begins the wrath of God, or, well, we have the rapture, and then after that we have the wrath of God. So he sees the seventh seal, seven trumpets, as the wrath of God, and this is specifically the day of the Lord, the beginning of the day of the Lord. And he also has... I think at least one chapter on 74 more days. He puts them there. So he kind of extends this period of tribulation beyond the seven years. That's from Daniel. Daniel adds a few days in there. And then we have then we have the return. I didn't put that on the screen, but then we have the second coming, that last purple or the purple line before the kingdom, before the millennium. Pre-wrath. That's kind of gone out of favor. It had strong reaction from premillennialists and others as well, and a lot of weaknesses have been shown, and I haven't heard a whole lot about this position, so I don't even know if it's... And even, I think, Rosenthal, I think he took back some of his arguments as well. But kind of a novel view that still, the book's still out there, 
And I think there's some people who still hold to it, but not too many. Here's an interesting one, a partial rapture view. And don't count the numbers, they just kind of represent, in other words, these are different raptures, but there's not a specific number, it's just whenever believers are ready, they're raptured. (laughs) So it would see a pre-tribulation rapture for the saints that are ready to be raptured at the beginning of the seven-year period of time. So all of us pre-tribs would be in that group. And all of the mid-tribs, would might, they might have to wait till the mid-trib because they're not ready yet. And they need to suffer a little before they are made to be ready. So the idea is it's a partial rapture in the sense that some go at one time, only partial in terms of the whole. And then those, as they are ready, they will be raptured, not necessarily in groups, but maybe individually, okay, this morning, okay, I finally realized I should have gotten my act together. I've got it together. Sorry, Lord. Would you please forgive me? I want to walk with you. Boop, you get up, raptured. So whenever you're ready, you're raptured, and some won't be raptured till the very end. It just doesn't hit until then, and they realize that the only hope is let's walk faithfully with the Lord, and then they're raptured. And they even see one at the end of the millennium. So partial rapture. And then we have the return of Christ before the millennium. So it's pre-millennial. Now the emphasis of this viewpoint is the nature of the believer or the spiritual, probably more accurately, the spiritual condition of the believer. When he becomes spiritual, he is raptured. In his carnal, worldly life, uh, the Lord lets him remain until he kind of gets his act together. And then he's raptured. So the emphasis on, you know, you need to get your act together if you want to escape the seven years. If not, then you're going to have to go through some tribulation, and that's going to wake you up. And then as you get your act together, now you will be raptured. So multiple rapture. The basis is spiritual condition. Any scriptures to justify that, or is it just... It's a little pulling things out of the room. So it doesn't emphasize the time frame. It emphasizes the nature of the believer. There are not too many of these, by the way. Let's take a break, and we'll come back and look at some uh, positions. 